everyone, and welcome to That Wellness Podcast with Natalie Deering. I'm sitting here today with Ann Cinco. Ann is a senior trainer for the IFS Institute. She's also a licensed marriage and family therapist. She was an adjunct professor at Central Connecticut State University on the marriage and family therapy program for 27 years and conducts continuing education workshops on legacy burdens, grief retreats, and she's in private practice in Portland, Connecticut. Welcome, Anne, to the podcast. Natalie, it's nice to be here. I'm so happy that you're here, truly. I came to know you because you were a lead trainer in my IFS level one. That was, it's all starting to blend together. <laughs> I'm sure that it's that case for you because you do a lot of them. We were still in person, so it has to be pre-COVID. No, it wasn't. It was virtual. Oh. Was it virtual? See, it, it does blend, yeah. blend together. Yeah. <laughs> no, it was all, it was virtual. So it was, okay. So I completed my level one about a year and eight months ago. Okay. Or a year and maybe four months ago, something like that. So it's almost been, yeah, two years. So, and I can't believe that because time has <laughs> flown, <laughs> but you were one of the lead trainers. And then Leslie Petrick was the other trainer. Okay. And it was virtual. Yeah. Yeah, it was a great experience. It was <laughs> truly, I had been diving into IFS through other resources like Pezzi and uh, books and things like that for about a year and a half before getting into the, the level one. And I'll say doing the level one is nothing like doing all those other yeah. trainings. You don't know what you don't know. And and I even used to teach this theory before I went through what was called back then my basic training. Mm -hmm. And I thought I knew it, you know, I, I applied family systems theories to it. And no, you really need to take the training to really learn how to be an IFS therapist. Yes. And that really... Because similarly, yeah, I was taking those workshops, reading the things, and I was practicing it, you know, with my clients in ways that made sense to me. And then going into the actual level one, it was like, oh, wow, okay, this is getting a lot deeper. Because I do feel like it's, I think, how long was it? Maybe like six months or so long? Oh, they're probably longer than that. Maybe um, eight months. Eight months, yeah. Yeah. And I describe it to people as an experience where... I really got to get to know parts of me and that was so valuable. And then that led me into finding my own IFS therapist. Cause I, I do feel like that if we're going to be doing this work and I feel like you'd agree, we got to have our own IFS therapist, practitioner, helper. Right. Cause th the beautiful thing about IFS is that we think about anything that activates us as a trailhead that we could follow for our own healing and our own personal growth and understanding. So having someone that, you know, you can turn to even as the helper and the provider and the guide in this model, you got to have someone that you can also help you connect with all of that, all of those trailheads. So yeah, the level one training was absolutely fantastic. And I was really excited when I saw your name as one of the lead trainers, because I, through my research and stuff like that, I had seen your name in connection with what's called legacy burdens in IFS. And I remember, I think I asked the question, I think you all were asking us, what are questions do you all have? Like in our level one. And I think I wrote in there, are we going to learn about legacy burdens? And I remember you read the, and you were like, yes. <laughs> I was like, yes. Okay. <laughs> we're going to get into it. Because I knew you had that expertise and that knowledge. So I was very excited. And then I ended up taking one of your legacy burden workshops. And that was virtual. And I think that was a full day. That Yes, that is a full day. Yeah, where we get in much more in depth than we do in a level one training. Yeah, so that was that was really wonderful. And so I'd love to ask you this question. How did you get connected with IFS? And when did that happen? How did that happen? So I was adjunct faculty starting in 1995 at Central Connecticut State University. And Ralph Cohen, who was the director of that program, modeled the program on what was called Meta Framework, which is six different domains of understanding human systems. And IFS was one of the domains. 
And then one of his students went to a conference and found Dick's book, which was written in 1995, and came to Ralph and said, do you know this is a whole theory? It's not just one of these domains of understanding human systems. So uh, Ralph then went to a conference and met Dick and they started talking. And that's how trainings started uh, here on the East Coast at some of the very first trainings happened at Central Connecticut State University. So that's how I got into IFS. And the training started and Ralph kept saying, Ann, you got to come take this training. I'm like, I don't want to take another training. And yeah. finally he talked me into it. And I got on that train and I haven't gotten off since. Yeah. So you're, yeah, you're one of the original people that There's got a on board. For me. There's a, oh, okay. but the, the whole like kind of second generation of trainers came out of the Connecticut training. Okay. And you feel like when you found it or when it found you, would you say that, like you said, you got on the train and you never got off? It just kind of really resonated with you. Yes. I felt like I didn't have to change my belief system. What I like to say is I found a better tread on my tire. Oh, I like that. Now I already understood systems mm. and human systems and the human psyche about what we need to have balanced harmonious lives are already inside of us but they get blocked by our by burdens by constraints and that our job is to help release those constraints right because ifs is known and correct me if i'm wrong as a constraint release model correct yeah deficit model, which means we have to reparent you. We have to give you because you didn't get. That's right. Okay. I always forgot what the other one was, a deficit model. And what you're saying is a deficit model or the type of other modalities maybe that are out there that, like you just said, might look at a person and be like, oh, you don't have the resources in order to handle this, that, and the other. So we're going to give them to you. We're going to build your skills. We're going to teach you things. We're going to, yeah. In an IFS, the constraint release model is let's turn towards the parts of you that maybe are impacting or creating the constraints because they're doing it for some sort of reason. Right. And then help them eventually be like unburdened, right? And release that constraint. So basically the way I look at it is how can we manage our emotion? And did we have secure attachment figures to help us learn that. And if we didn't, we had to then exile anything that was too overwhelming. What comes out of that are all the strategies that we take on to stay away from that, which is too vulnerable or believed to be too vulnerable. And in IFS, what I love about it, because I was, before I came across IFS, I was definitely in the deficit type of model where Again, positive intention of like wanting to help people, you know, not suffer with certain things like anxiety or depression or things like that. So it was a lot of me giving people things to do to help them feel like they can build up that resource. Right. And and again, I like to say this, though, too, I'm still I still engage in, you know, things of that nature, whether they're grounding tools or meditation. Right. I mean, that when they're used in a way to help connect with parts, with that understanding, with compassion, with curiosity. And then ultimately, yeah, having that relationship building and understanding that it's connecting to our self energy, that resource is always there. And so I look back, yeah, and I, you know, I have compassion for the parts of me that again, just that was the way they were taught. And then I think when I came across IFS, it was just this, my system, I feel like kind of like yours was just like, yes, this just makes sense. And so you got into IFS and then how did you eventually get to, would you say you have like a specialization in legacy burdens? Yes. Well, my training in marriage and family therapy, I was really, really um, drawn to multi-generational models, the models that really believe that you can't understand an individual if you don't look at them in at least a three-generational context. So I think that that's where my interest of, you know, I didn't have that term legacy burden. I was really drawn to that. And also in my own personal life, losses and repeated patterns through the generations, I think is why I was 
so drawn to intergenerational models was the beginning of my interest in legacy burdens. Yeah. And two of my major mentors, uh, Mitchie Rose and Barb Cargill, they were really my mentors in terms of legacy burdens. They, they, both of them are the ones that really kind of brought these ideas into IFS. And then in, I think, 2017, there was a, I wrote a chapter on legacy burdens, which there hadn't been one written before for IFS. So I really had to concretize a lot of things that I've learned through IFS, from Barb and Mitchie, from shamanism, from family constellation work, mm-hmm. and kind of put that into more of a cohesive model. Now, there's lots of models or traditions out there to help with this phenomena. And so, you know, this is just one. And I really encourage people to learn and then find out which way works best for you. Absolutely. And so can we go ahead and kind of dive into what are legacy burdens? Because I'm sure we have listeners listening to this that are like, what are they talking about? I've never heard of this before. So how would you describe them? So legacy burdens are feelings, thoughts, emotions, energies that we inherit from our bloodline. And people who are adopted kind of get it from two families, their adopted family as well as their bloodline. And they are not created in our lifetime. They get passed down from generation to generation. Now we also have heirlooms, the positive things that get passed down, but then we also have these burdens that get passed down. And right out of the Bible, I mean, this this, phenomena has been known forever and dealt with in different traditions in different ways. Like in Exodus, there is a quote, the sins of the father are visited upon the children. And the belief is that, you know, if, something is not resolved, it will repeat. And I wonder, you know, at the, the saying, I guess in our culture, and tell me if this resonates with legacy burdens is like, we say like breaking the cycle. And the cycle, I feel like could represent legacy burden energy. Absolutely. Absolutely. Like if you look at the research on, let's say domestic violence, if you were a child that witnessed domestic violence in your home, there's a much higher chance that you will be in a domestic violence on one side or the other relationship when you grow up. Look at the patterns of alcoholism, which is a coping mm-hmm. mechanism. It's not the burden. There's something, some trauma, some shame that happened in a previous generation, but the substance abuse, those coping behaviors become how we feel about our bodies as being female or male or that, that, comes down through those are beliefs that come down well that are other that are different from us that gets passed down yeah and I feel like that's where we could get into now all the different types of burdens right there's legacy burdens cultural burdens ethnic burdens you know so many things now that I feel like in the IFS community and outside are starting to look at and acknowledge that like you said that this is a real thing and it's having an impact would you say on everybody in some way? Everybody. They're ubiquitous. We all have legacy burden. And we don't know that until we start to, we have someone say, where did that come from? Where where did you take on that belief? Is all of that yours? Or, or sometimes clients will come in and go, I don't even think this is mine. Right. Like this doesn't make sense. I don't understand why I feel this, that, or yeah, like this doesn't make sense. Yeah. That to me was really powerful in learning about legacy burdens with you was this realization for me personally of like, let's say anxiety, because it always felt within me like, I don't get it. Like why, (laughs) why is my system carrying this level of anxiety? It never seemed to make sense to me. And then yeah, getting my own IFS therapist, my own IFS consultant, you know, and seeing those people every month for the past almost two years. It's been so helpful for me to be able to have that awareness and to be able to turn inside with a guide 
that's trained in this to then come across and have that clarity of, oh, wow, this a big, I mean, like 75% for me was not mine in connection to that energy in which we call anxiety and what was behind that, you know, what was driving that. And what I witnessed, and we'll get more into this, you know, but what I witnessed was it, it's connection. Yeah. Within both sides of my family. And again, like what that was connected to and how far back it went. And that to me was, it's like a freeing feeling I felt within my system of parts of me realizing, oh, okay, maybe parts of me were trying to make sense of it, right? Or trying to, of course, like try to push manage it away, it. manage it, right? Yeah. And then to have that, yeah, just that understanding of like, wow, okay, huh. this big piece of this wasn't even mine. So freeing and so uplifting and, and feels lighter. Yeah. And the second half of that, it's not mine and I don't need to carry it. Yeah. I don't need to carry it. I've seen some clients shift in their lives, like really big shifts because of unburdening legacy burdens, veils that we see the world through. And when they're, when they're released, we have much more clarity who we are and what our purpose or wants are. Right. Do you feel like this, the studies and research that have been done on like epigenetics, do you feel like because there's been like scientific evidence that this does happen, that now more people are open to. Absolutely. It is also science, but it's also spirituality. I, right. The pendulum has, has swung back toward people really looking for spiritual ways of healing as, as well as now we have the science to support what some spiritual traditions have been saying forever. Right. I agree. And I, I do think we are yeah shifting for sure into a more spiritual realm in the world right now. And I think it's interesting kind of the balance of that with the scientific evidence that's now able to be to be present for people who maybe need that, you know, to really help parts of them see like, oh, okay, yeah. I think about the study with the mice and the cherry blossom. And I, and for people who may not know that, and correct me if I'm wrong, wrong, Anne, about this, but wasn't it, they took a group of mice in a lab, kind of classically conditioned them to be afraid of the smell of cherry blossom. Yes. And then, and then to the point where they had a fear response, you know, so they smell cherry blossom and then they would, you know, they'd have a fear response within the mice. Then those mice had babies and they didn't do the cherry blossom thing, but they didn't what, condition them to be afraid of it. Right. right. But what they found was that for sure that next generation, and I don't even know, maybe even a couple generations after that. Several yeah. generations. After okay. That. When they smelled cherry blossom, they had the same fear response. Yes. And that was the proof, right? Of like, oh, wow, this stuff passes down. <laughs> and I'm grateful that scientists took the time to, you know, do that study because, yeah, I think it opened the door for a, a larger group of people to see this and be open to it. So, you know, thinking about just human biology, okay, our grandmothers had the egg inside of them that became our mothers and our fathers that then became us. So any trauma that they experienced and that didn't get resolved in their bodies is part of. Yeah. That like blows my mind when you say it like that, you know, like, your grandmother had the eggs of your mother who had the already, the, you know, the genetic egg, just like, whoa, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. but it's right. We're all connected. Mm -hmm. And so how would someone, I guess, identify what their legacy burdens are? So again, it starts with curiosity and some indications are if you have irrational fears, like somehow you're going to lose all your money or you're going to die early and it, it you don't have the history that supports or like you were talking about the anxiety my life is good why do i have so much anxiety so you, you start you start to get curious about why i have the symptom that i do and then you start asking questions about how much of this did i inherit now for some people you can just ask your parts mm -hmm. other people need to do a little more they need to do some 
some genealogical um, work, which is really helpful to actually know why did your family immigrate? And most people don't immigrate because life is good. Yeah. Some do, but that's that's a much smaller percentage. I have found like, uh, you know, the Holocaust, working with a lot, a lot of people who are descendants of people of the Holocaust, and they've been holding that trauma in their bodies and it's showing up in symptoms in them and their children and their grandchildren. The uh, potato famine, working with Ir- people with Irish heritage, not enough has turned not enough food has turned into a belief that I'm not enough mm. over generations, but it started with a famine. Yeah. Which is a trauma, right? Like if you're literally not able to eat and there's not enough food, I mean, that's a trauma, Holocaust trauma, right? And so that makes a lot of sense that again, if we are, whether it be through biological birthing or like you said, even through adoption, the energies that are being carried from those traumas can be passed down. And maybe like you said, like with the worthlessness, like kind of morph, would you say that it could, because with not having enough, like with the potato potato famine, could then those show up generations later as a legacy burden of I'm not, I'm yeah, I'm not enough. enough. Okay. The other thing that stood out for me and, and, in the training with you was you mentioned alcoholism and you said, you know, when that's pattern within a family, I remember you saying something like, it's not the alcoholism, it's the pain behind that or something to that degree. It's something traumatic happened somewhere. You don't become an alcoholic if there isn't. And then the more shame or stigma associated to whatever that trauma was, the more secrecy that then comes into that. So our stories get lost. Okay. When we know our stories, we tend to be less anxious, even if they're, they're stories of shame, because we know, oh, well, I feel this way because here's a story that here's an experience. And so alcoholism is a coping behavior. It is, I mean, yes, it becomes physically addictive, but it is, I can't cope with whatever that feeling is. Yeah. And that feeling is shame. Where did it come from? It might not co- even come from your your lifetime. It may come from your parents, right? Your grandparents' experience. Exactly. And so, one thing that I think you brought up in the workshop was you encouraged us to do a, a is it called a genogram? Genogram, yeah. A genogram, and that was basically where we it was kind of like a family tree, right? Yeah. And then you can kind of use that as an opportunity to reflect on both maybe, I guess I would say, like you were mentioning heirlooms, you know, so like strengths, quote unquote, weaknesses, or um, kind of things that maybe certain family members have dealt with. And I remember when I did the exercise, because then you like you encourage us to look at the whole picture. And then I think to circle things that resonated with us as the individual, both the burdens and the heirlooms. And then to use that as an opportunity to bring awareness and curiosity to maybe what are some of these things that have been passed down through the family. And that's where I feel like having that knowledge, getting the story or having that information about our ancestors and family members can be really helpful. It's worth asking for the stories. It really is worth asking for the stories of, um, you know, both how they survived or their, their struggles. Yeah. And cause I, I took that away as well, where you mentioned the power of knowing the power of, of having the story, the background, which I agree. I feel like as I know more and more about my family history and the stuff that they went through, it's, it doesn't feel so confusing anymore. <laughs> and I worked at a psych psychiatric hospital for a long time and it it made me get very interested and learned a lot about um, adopted folks Mm. because there is a disproportionate amount of adopted folks that end up in psychiatric hospitals. And I think it has everything to do with this, not having your story, not knowing Mm. where you come from, that 
is not good for human beings. I mean, it's, we know this is true because there's laws being changed so that adopted people can find out more about their history because it, it has been so harmful not be given your information where you're from. Yeah. And again, that makes a lot of sense to me because I feel like that's, would you say just probably just naturally ingrained in us is this, this need to know our background. And, and I feel like storytelling literally in itself isn't as prominent anymore as probably it used to be when we didn't have technology to distract us. And we're not just sitting around watching TV. You know, we would sit around and tell stories and there was probably more of an understanding of our background. And if you don't have family stories, that's diagnostic. Okay. Why didn't your family tell stories? Because there was probably some shame associated that then secrecy happens. And then that starts to mystify and mess up our communication. Makes sense. <laughs> you know, I, you know, I've worked with families where nothing is okay to talk about except the weather. Everything, because anything else might trigger something so that it, it just mystifies and truncates and, and, and makes it impossible to then openly communicate with each other. Right. And so you mention in your trainings, you mention covert and overt ways that people can kind of take on legacy burdens. Can you talk about the difference of what those are? Sure. Covert would be more of this energetic, like we didn't hear things in our families. We just feel them. Okay. So those are the more covert. So let's say my mother never talked badly about her body, but I knew she didn't like her feminine body, her female body. Okay. And so maybe I felt the same way about mine. I had I really struggled with loving my body. What we didn't know was, let's say her mother had been sexually abused and that's, but it never got talked about. So she didn't like her body. So that, that would be covert. Now let's use the same example, but let's say my grandmother was sexually abused, but she openly talked negatively about how much she hated her body and, you know, made comments about critical comments about other women's bodies and hated sex and, you know, and, but was verbal about those things. Okay. Mm -hmm. So that she was that way toward my mother's parts. And then my mother's parts were that way toward her children's parts. Mm -hmm. Okay. So we heard it, it was our direct experience, but it was still coming from this legacy bird. Right. So that's kind of the difference between overt and covert. Overt is we have this direct experience of it, but it still wasn't created in our life. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So that's where if you were to then be, be maybe connecting with that person in particular as a therapist client relationship, and you might ask them, you know, how much of this feels inherited and they might be like 50, 50, you know, where 50% of that feels just given to me. And then the other 50% is through the direct experience because maybe it was that very overt type of behavior that they witnessed their mom like you said, shaming their body and then maybe saying some things to them as the kid. So yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And then, so let's say there's a legacy burden there within the family. How do they get reinforced? And I know we've kind of touched on some of this a little bit already, but you talk about the eight rules of shame. Yes. There's actually nine rules. I added one, which is compare to everybody else to see how you don't measure up or, or compare that you have so much privilege, you don't deserve to feel the way you do mm. work with people. I thought that needed to be added to the rules. Yeah, yeah. I completely agree with that. And those came out of a family therapy textbook called secrets and therapy and therapy and family therapy, family system, something like that by Evan Imbert black. And it came, they came out of studying adult um, alcoholic families. But when I learned them, I said, oh, this fits to just dysfunctional family. So I, when I started learning about legacy burdens in IFS, I said, oh, those rules of shame so fit our protective system. 
Okay. Our, I, I call them the, the, the manager's creed mm. because our managers adhere to those rules of shame in pri- in trying to protect us. So just I'll, I'll list some of them, but be in control of yourself and others. Be perfect. I always try to do better than. Don't talk about anything vulnerable. Don't feel anything vulnerable. Don't ex- don't trust. Don't expect relational reliability. You have a list there. Yeah, uh, you've already meant, but you said yeah, control, perfectionism, blame. Oh, blame. Yep, self or others. Self or others. Denial, unreliability, incompleteness. Yeah, don't expect repair. Sweep it under the rug and move on. No talk. No. Disqualifications. Yeah. So that means to disguise or deny anything that could be vulnerable or painful or shameful. And then the new one, compare. Yeah. Yeah, When you, I remember again in the training, you brought this up on one of the slides and I had never seen it before. I'd never heard of it, you know, before the rules of shame, but it was really helpful for me to see them laid out like that because it made a lot of sense. And then you can start when you read that list, at least for me, you can start to look at it and be like, oh, that's interesting. <laughs> like one in particular might stand out to you. And maybe that's a, you know, a trailhead or a hint to, hmm, well, maybe that's something I could explore in regards to within the family. Yeah. And you could even ask, you know, so did anyone else in your family have a this like extreme perfectionism or this extreme control? And adhering to those rules of shame is another way that they get the multi-generational transmission process. So um, again, it's fascinating to study alcoholic families. We've got, you know, decades or centuries of doing that. Yeah. Um, and so what you'll see is there'll be a, su- uh, a generation where there's active substance abuse. Okay. And then the next generation won't touch any substances. And then the next generation, you see the active substance use again. But what happened was they got rid of the substance, but they still adhered to all the rules of shame. Right. Because again, like what you're saying, the drinking itself is the coping mechanism for the shame. Yes. Yeah. Whatever that pain is. So the shame doesn't get healed. It get ma- It gets managed by these rules of shame. Right. And that's how it gets passed down from generation to generation to generation. Yeah. Okay. So if like, if we were using that example of alcoholism and looking at that list, I'm thinking about like denial, you know, maybe it's not talked about um, whether it be the actual act of the alcoholism or don't talk about it, cover it up, all of that, right? Uh, Control. (laughs) I mean, really you can. Right. And so again, it's, it's looking at what resonates for you and within your family. And then that can be an opportunity to turn within yourself and notice what resonates for you. And so this is where I feel like we can get into now. Once let's say you've identified a legacy burden that you feel like you carry, how could someone, or let's, let's just use the example just straight up of like, you're with an IFS therapist or an IFS practitioner who's been trained in this, what would you, let's run through that. Is that okay? Of how that could look? So again, you need to be trained to begin to hone what we call a legacy burden detector. Like when you're trained in IFS, you learn how to be a parts detector. So the same thing is true with legacy burden is You're listening to someone and in the role of a therapist, you start to get very curious about, I think that might have some legacy energy to it. So you start asking questions like, does that belong? Does anyone else in your family have that? Do you feel like that belongs to you or you alone? Or, you know, just ask inside, how much of this do you feel like you inherited? You know, so you you just start asking those questions, probes to see how the client responds to that. Right. I always find this one to be interesting, too, when maybe they're talking to a protector part or and you ask, when did this start? And they're like, oh, it's always. Yeah, that's that's a good one. Yeah. When when someone says always, well, that means it came into you when you were born. Right. (laughs) Yeah. Like maybe oh, it's always been here. 
And so let's say a therapist detects, yep, this sounds like a legacy burden. They ask the person how, like what percentage of this feels inherited. The person's like, oh yeah, 50% or 20%, 30, you know, whatever it might be. Clearly there's a piece of this that has been inherited. Then what? Well, then you would ask just in, in kind of staying with an IFS protocol, you would ask, is there any reason why you have to hold on to this 50% that isn't yours? If there is, then you have to address those concerns. Of, and there are three or four major, you know, most common concerns. One is I won't know who I am without it. One will be oddly disloyal. Another one is I'll lose connection to whoever that ancestor is. Yeah. And the yeah. fourth one is a fear of, um, if we pass it back, that will be harming the ancestor. That's right. So it, there's ways to address all of those concerns. Yes. And it's important to hear them, right? Because you want to hear those concerns so that then the parts within the person that are connected to maybe carrying that burden feels like this is okay yes. to let go. We want them to have buy-in because it 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 can't happen if they don't. If they believe that they need a burden for some reason, then they're not going to be able to unload it. Right. I feel like I hear the the fear of lack of connection the most yeah. when I offer this to someone that I'm working with and it's a legacy burden. I feel like most often the, the, the fear is, uh, you know, that, well, if I let this go, I won't feel connected to my father anymore or yeah. to my mother or whomever it might be. And that's, again, it's like you address that concern and validate that, right? Because maybe that is how they've had this tie kind of to each other. And that's what's been there their whole life. And so to have that idea that then that could be taken away makes sense that a part would be like, well, wait a minute. Well, then what's going to, what is keeping us connected? And it's like, oh, well, it could be something even more better than that. Right. Yeah. Like love. So those are the concerns. You address the concerns. And then once the parts are like, okay, there's buy-in. And there are concerns, but I have found on the most part, legacy burdens are easier to unburden than personal burdens because you don't have to get into the witnessing of them because it's, it's not yours. You don't have. Yeah. Now, sometimes people do see ancestors stories, but there's a way for us to frame it too. So they don't feel crazy. Like, what am I seeing here? So in, in a lot of ways, they're easier than personal burdens to Because one, the protective system's like, oh, this isn't created in my lifetime. I don't need this. Let's get rid of it. Mm -hmm. um, so once we have the buy-in, then we invite the parts to unload it. And they can un what we can do is we can invite in all and any ancestors that carried this burden. And then we pass it back till the end where the end of the line. And then we invite it to be transformed by something, earth, fire, wind, water, mm -hmm. or anything else. And then what we do is we invite in positive qualities. What maybe couldn't come into its potential because of the burden. And that comes back in the line and it gets passed forward back to the client and then from yeah. the client to children. And there's a couple different ways that that can happen, right? It kind of let's rewind a little bit. And because I know that there is the option of inviting the person to invite in the ancestors, anyone who also carries this burden, but they also don't have to, right? They don't have to. No, no. If that feels too strange for them, they don't have to, they could just unburden it to some element. I personally believe that we help heal the earth more completely if we bring in the ancestors, that we're helping to heal the collective unconscious by yeah. helping clear the generational line. And I'm always surprised at how I think people are going to go, oh, what are you talking about? And they don't. It's a. It feels like a very intuitive yes. process. And I feel like not all the time, but I feel like a lot of the time it kind of just naturally happens too. Very intuitive. Yeah. Like, oh, I, I can see my mom or I can see my dad or, oh, I see people that I, I don't even know. Yeah. People going on in it, you know, forever. 
Yeah, it's yeah. very cool what people um, experience. Absolutely. And then like once, let's say it is someone who's invited yeah, the ancestors to be there and and then we invite them, like you said, to take that inherited burden out of their body and pass it back. And this is where sometimes I encounter, I think, a part that comes up that might be like, well, wait a minute, hold on. I don't want to hurt them. Like, I don't want to give them this burden as like a punishment, right? Or if I pass this back to them, I don't I don't want to burden them <laughs> with that. So basically what how we address that is you are not burdening them. You are handing them back that which is theirs that you have been carried and burdened by. And you did that a lot of times out of your awareness, or you did it because you thought you were trying to help carry their burden, but that's not what happened. Actually, you were both carrying the burden then. Yeah. I mean, that's a child logic. If mommy's depressed and I take some of her depression, then she'll only have half of it and I'll have half and she'll function better. Mm. That, you know, there's a lot of child logic in, in that. Yeah. Through, through symptom. Or you could just ask, and this is really touching for people, is ask the ancestor, will we be connected? Is it okay if I pass this back to you? And, you know, if you think about your own child, if they asked you, you would go, oh, please, I never wanted you to have in the first place. Right. And the thing is, too, is that we're not passing it to them for them then to carry on for eternity, right? (laughs) It's they're then also going to have the opportunity to release then that from their body and pass that back to the next person. And then that happens again, happens again, happens again until it reaches the start. And then that ancestor can release it to, like you were saying, whatever element or way makes sense. Maybe they need to bury it. Maybe they need to throw it into the water, burn it. Yeah. And fire. And then it's, it's right. a release through the line. Right. It's a generational clearing and we're not dumping anything on anybody. Right. And there's a belief in energy that everybody needs all of their own energy to heal. Mm. Someone else can't carry and heal someone else's energy for them. Yeah, I believe that. The other thing that I appreciate that I learned from you about this was offering like at the end a means to honor that which even created, right? The burden in the first place. And by offering like a monument or um, a headstone or, you know, flowers or something that, because I have found that when I offer that for some people, oh, their ancestors are so grateful. Absolutely. Of yeah. like, yes, this needs Under to be honored. Hardship. Yeah. Yeah, that created the burden, and no one, no one ever wanted to create a burden for their for the next generation. They were just trying to survive. So yeah, just acknowledging and honoring that, absolutely. And so once all of that is released, then we invite them, the person at the start, to to kind of take in a, a maybe qualities that would you say were always there that maybe just got pushed. You know, away, I or both in IFS, yeah. we say anything that got pushed out or you may need in the future, you know, or yeah. Yeah. And so then, then they might be like worthiness or compassion or playfulness or whatever it might be, you I know, love whatever. Yeah. And then they take that in and then I love this part. I just think it's so beautiful. It's like they take it in and then they pass it to the next person. They take it in, they pass it to the next person. And I just, it's so wonderful. And then, you know, it gets to the the person that's doing this and they receive it and they can take it in. And, oh, the other cool thing that we haven't mentioned yet was, I think you may have said it briefly, but if the client's sitting there and they have children. Or grandchildren. Or grandchildren. Or I think I even heard you say before, like, if they're even planning on maybe having kids, they can visualize, like, their eggs, if they're female or male, you know, and visualize that being released. Absolutely. Yeah. You you would then start, you know, once you've addressed all the concerns, then you would say, do you have children, grandchildren? Let's start with them. Yeah. Invite them to take it out of their body, pass it back to you. Yeah. 
The thing that we haven't mentioned that's really, really important in all of this work is that we unblend and we make sure that everyone is in self-energy. This can't be done in parts. It has right. to be done in self-energy, both ancestors and client. Yes. And with that, when you ask someone to invite in their ancestors, maybe we'd say something like in their highest potential their highest self potential, something like that. Uh, I learned from Mitchie Rose the term highest positive potential. I have encountered sometimes though, where maybe for someone, uh, maybe an ancestor comes forward and let's say maybe their energy is not very positive. Yeah. And how would you say, I guess, how would you conceptualize that? Um, it's a, it's a part of the ancestor. So what I say is, Parts are not, in IFS, we have this, all parts are welcome. In healing work, no parts are welcome, only self, okay? So we need to add, we unblend the ancestor or we set, or we just, you have to go to a healing place. Okay. And if they're unwilling to do that, then then you need to skip that generation. A lot of times the work you have to do with your client because there's not a good relationship, let's say between their parents. And so you need to work on that. And that may be the bulk of the work. Right. Uh, getting that self to self relationship. Yeah. Cause I, I, I sense that too. Like, yeah, let's say someone has a, you know, strained relationship for whatever reasons with let's say their father or whatnot. And the legacy burden is attached to their father. And he shares that if the, if the client has parts within them that are, you know, feeling hateful towards their dad or resentful or angry or whatever it might be, like you're saying, it's, it's addressing those parts and getting to know those parts so that then they're not kind of getting in the way. They won't let it happen. They won't let it happen. Exactly. Yeah. The constraint release. (laughs) Yeah. So saying me, I'm making sure you're in self, you know, feeling curious, feeling compassionate, all of that. Right. And making sure too that if ancestors are involved, that they're in their highest positive yes. energy as well. You know that by you know, you ask a question: Is it okay if I pass this back? Absolutely, I'm so sorry. You know, they say exactly what needs to be said. Right. If like, no, no, you have to hold on to it. You know, it's a part. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, and it's such beautiful. It's so beautiful, this legacy unburdening. It truly is. Because I, at least in my personal experience with doing my own, I have felt so much more connected to my family, to these ancestors that maybe I've never even known, but you just feel it. You feel that sense of connection that we are connected, that we're not alone, and that there's just this energy of love. Well, our ancestors are a huge resource for us. And we live in a culture, at least this predominant U.S., where we're very disconnected from our ancestors. And that's not like the rest of the world, which is cutting us off from a huge resource. Yes, I agree. And so anything else you'd like to add that we haven't touched on in regards to legacy burdens? I know there's a lot. But, yeah, but... there's there's a lot. Like, yeah, we could do a five-week training here. Right. Just one thing I was thinking about when we were talking, Natalie, is some of my teachers in many different traditions believe that the violence that we are experiencing in our society is unresolved war trauma. Mm. Because everybody's family, everybody, probably doesn't have to go back very far to have someone who was fighting in a war, a victim in a war, and that 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 there's so much unresolved around war that comes out in violence in our society. Yeah. So, you know, it's I really believe every legacy unburdening we do helps the world. Yeah. I agree. And, you know, for those of you listening, if you already have an IFS therapist, and you're already engaging in this work, great. Or if you're listening to this and you're like, oh yeah, I can definitely sense that I'm carrying some, this legacy burden and this is one of those, you know, I would encourage you to go to the IFS Institute 
and find an IFS trained professional, ask them, would you say, Anne, like maybe just check in with them first and ask like, Hey, do you, you, do you do legacy and burning? Yeah. Mm -hmm. And ask them if they do that. And if they feel comfortable with that and, and then get yourself connected to someone who's trained and helping you get connected to that. Cause like I said, yeah, for me, and I know for you, Anne, obviously this has been very important part of healing. And you even talk very openly about, and correct me if I'm wrong, that you would prefer a lot of the time maybe to address the legacy burdens when you're working with someone first. Yes. Before even getting to like their direct experience, personal stuff. Absolutely. Absolutely. My belief is, um, let's say you've got a big burden of shame, right? And 50% of it isn't even yours. It's going to be a lot easier to work with your personal 50% once you've taken off the the 50% you inherited. Mm-hmm. So unless someone's system won't let me, I will totally work with their legacy burdens first. Okay. I've been using the metaphor of smoke in a room. And, you know, let's say you're in a room and there's, it's really smoky and you're trying to find like your item, but it's hard to really have that connection and find it. And so then if you're able to open up a window and like allow that smoke to be released, then there's more clarity there. And then you can more clearly see, oh, there's my thing. (laughs) And the legacy burden being smoke, kind of like it's just there. And it doesn't have to be. Definitely clouds clouds our perception of the yeah. world. So we were talking before we hit record and you were telling me that with the continuity program, which is through the IFS Institute, and you have to be at least a level one, I believe, to be part of the continuity program. Level correct? one or have taken the circle, the online. Or taken the circle. Okay. Yeah. yeah. And that you will be leading one of the modules in the fall about legacy burdens and cultural burdens. Yeah. Great. I'm excited for that. I'm, I'm, I'll am i be joining that one as well. Anything else you want to add or let the listeners know? Not that I could think of. Thank you for having me today and yeah. letting me talk about something I'm real passionate about. Well, I'm so grateful, Anne, that we were able to make this work and you've been such a mentor for me in my IFS journey. And I'm just really grateful to have spent the last hour with you chatting about legacy burdens because I find them to be fascinating. Me too. So thank you so much. Thanks. All right, everyone. Talk to you later. Bye.